The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. If you will, please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. You can go to Exodus 1. I'm going to begin with the last verse of Exodus 14. There's some more, hand, some more need, people that need some handouts. Who, who needs handouts? Just raise your hand. After God showed up in the desert region of Egypt, moving against the largest army of the ancient world and showing that he was supreme, rescuing Israel through the waters, this is what we read. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So, the people feared Yahweh. And they believed in Yahweh and in his servant, Moses. My prayer is that in the next few minutes, fear would awaken in your hearts. Because the God that I'm about to speak of is not small. He is massively big. And His presence at work in us should cause us to tremble. He wants us to know Him as big, as great. Indeed, the way He's going to define Himself is the causer of all things. The book of Exodus is about God. Perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, it is from start to finish designed explicitly to portray God's character. It says it's about the name of God. Not just to identify him with YHWH, Yahweh, but to unpack what Yahweh's name means and what the significance of that name is, not only for his people, but for those who are not his people. Because he is the God of all things, Israel, his elect, and also Egypt. Israel saw his power and they feared and they believed in Yahweh. Pray with me. Lord, I ask that in the next 30 minutes you would show up and awaken new thoughts and even new affections, greater levels of dependence, just like Pastor John was speaking of today. A thanks be to God kind of obedience, kind of reception of your word. Make it possible today. May I not just be a speaker, but may your words move through me into the ears of these here and awaken a proper disposition to who you are proper affections 
proper trust. This I pray. Make it happen. Through Jesus. Amen. The book of Exodus. Three basic parts, all about God's name. But when God gets passionate about His glory, it's not separate from His love for us. And therefore, it's actually the greatest gift of God to a needy people to disclose Himself in a way that is true. It's the most loving thing of God to call us to recognize that He is supreme. Can anybody ponder any reasons why I would say it's the most loving act of God to call us to revel in His sovereignty, in His bigness? Why is that the most loving thing He could do? Any thoughts? The word is hope. Work that out a little bit. What do you mean without hope? Why does a proper knowledge of God give hope? To what end? Okay. So if we have a proper understanding of the Creator, then the creature gains identity. But if the creature can't connect with the Creator and has no sense of purpose or who this being is that's over all things, we all of a sudden are without purpose. No, clair- no clarity about why I woke up this morning. No sense of where is my life going. We don't have identity apart from the ultimate being. Why also is it the most loving thing of our God to disclose himself to us? Why is it the most loving thing of God to be most passionate for his own glory? He's the highest value. If God was to be more passionate about something other than himself he would stop being God. And we don't want a world where God is in chaos. But it is a loving thing of God. It brings order to the universe when he is passionate for his own renown. It's right. It's necessary. Why is it also the most loving thing of God to be passionate for his own glory and to call us to the same. God says, don't look elsewhere. Look to me. Why would he, why is that a loving thing? God wants us to be satisfied. And the one thing that can satisfy us is aligning with his definitions of right and wrong, his purpose for what we were made for, to find ourselves enraptured with him. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy for the lasting amount of time. That's love. So if we had a God who was not passionate for his own renown, we wouldn't experience him as a loving God. He's calling us to the, height, to the highest amount of satisfaction, a satisfaction that can overcome suffering. For Dave and Jenny heading back to Indonesia, any fears that they have, any, any sense of loss, 
what they're leaving behind, all of it pales in comparison to their willingness to say, God, you have promised to be enough. And because of that, we go. One other reason that comes to my mind of why this is a, a massively loving book, for God to display himself in a way that, in, that creates fear, to really grasp how big our God is and how dependent we ultimately are. For God to do that is massively loving because if we seek salvation anywhere else, it will not provide. Stop looking to money. Stop looking to sex. Stop looking to a job. It's not going to work for you. I alone can save And so I'm calling you to a radical, God-entranced vision for life. Radical, get up in the morning and move right to your word kind of living. Radical, shepherding your children's hearts to be dependent on me kind of living. Because I alone am your savior. I alone can help you out of the brokenness of this world that so far too often doesn't make sense. And we can't get our hands around it. I alone can save. A striking element, Exodus is the book where we get the Ten Commandments. And so often we have a concept of law is about burden. It's about being enslaved. And the Ten Commandments open with, I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you out of slavery. Which means that all of his calling, follow me, go this way, don't go this way, is not about slavery, it's about freedom. It's about relationship. It's about a loving father calling us to follow him in the way that is good, best for us. And and he's defined it for us. How hard if we had... Well, let me put it this way. I as a dad at times have expected of my children what I never told them I expected. And that makes it kind of hard for them. We don't have that kind of a God whoever misses it. He's graciously disclosed himself. So that's why I include both statements here. Yahweh's self-exalting gracious deliverance of his people. God's glory is not set aside, set apart from his love for us. They work hand in hand. His self-exalting, gracious gift of his law. His self-exalting, gracious manifestation of his own presence among his people. That's what this book's about. It builds off of the Messiah focus and missional focus of Genesis. How do I see that playing out? Well, number one, look in Exodus 1-7. Here's what God had said. Look toward the heavens. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Abraham, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to make you a nation. 
And then we read as if it's supposed to grab us in Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was full of them. This book starts out in five different ways saying Israel's becoming great. And if it's saying that Israel's becoming great right after the book of Genesis, what is the purpose of verse 7? Put it into its context. What's the purpose? John? This is a verse about God. It says, Israel increased, Israel grew in numbers, Israel multiplied, Israel grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And in every one of those five statements, we're not supposed to see Israel, we're supposed to see God. Israel's expansion and greatness is about the faithfulness of God to his promises. It's a little bit ironic that the book begins this way because God's faithfulness to his promises to his people, he's blessing them, is the very context for greater oppression from the enemy. Right? Israel increases in numbers. Pharaoh freaks out. He enhances the workload. And Israel, under the midst of suffering, is saying, wow, I'm blessed by God. But that's how we're supposed to read it. Their expansion was the very context for the world to become greater in in, in greater hostility to the people of God, and yet they were supposed to feel the blessing of God in the midst of it. God had promised to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt so as to move them to the promised land. This was where we were just before Christmas. Genesis 15, you'll remember these verses. God said, Know for certain, Abraham, yeah, I've promised to give you the land, but know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted 400 years. But... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. How long are you willing to hold on to the promises of God? How about 400 years? And to not see it happen yet. And to see the oppression increase, your life becoming more and more difficult. And all the while, God's saying, hold fast. Don't give in. Don't give up. Be confident that I will be faithful. I'm in charge of all of this. Your your suffering, I planned it. And I am doing a good thing. You're part of it. 400 years you're going to have to wait. And now Exodus comes. And this is what we read in chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 2, the very end. And God heard their groaning. Chapter 2, 24, Exodus 2. God heard Israel's groaning and God remembered his covenant. When God remembers in the Bible, it's not just... 
Oh, yeah. I lived in Boston once. Big deal. No, his remembering is specifically related to promises that he had to a people, and it moves him to act. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Cambria, God knows. Don't forget the promises. I'm here. I haven't left. It may feel like I'm far and distant, but I am not. And when the time is right, I will remember, and when I remember, I will act. Because my promises always are faithful. Always. Throughout all time, no eye has heard, nor ear, nor eye seen, nor ear heard a God like our God who works on behalf of those who wait for Him. Isaiah 64 4. John. According to Genesis 15, the tradition was, the tra- I say by tradition I mean, I think that even before Moses wrote Genesis, the story of Abraham was written down. Not just carried on through oral tradition, but, but held on in a written form, and Moses grabbed that as a source and put it into the book as we have it. So God had made promises. I just read Genesis 15. He told Abraham, you're not getting the land yet. 400 years, you're going to be waiting. I think they knew that. But we don't get a sense when we read Genesis, I mean Exodus 1, that they remembered it. They're just under a great burden. And that's what often happens. The storm comes in and we forget that there's a sun on the other side of the cloud. All we, all we can see is the darkness and that's all that we feel. Or, as I've said in the past, we get so near to the giant who's our enemy that all we see is his kneecaps and we fail to see that there's a God behind him. But God knew. This is a little bigger. A lot more words. But it's about Israel being called God's son. Just turn a few pages over to chapter 4 and look with me at verses 22 and 23. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and this is what you need to say to him. Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me, that he may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, I'll kill your firstborn son. Now it's very interesting that Israel as a nation is called the Son of God. And what it does is it, it brings back to my, my memory Genesis chapter 5 where it says, And God made man in his image, in his likeness, he created them, male and female. And Adam begat his own son in his own image and in his own likeness. So Seth was the son of Adam born in Adam's likeness, and Adam was, uh, 
created in the likeness of God, which suggests that Adam was the son of God. So we have Adam, the son of God, Seth, the son of Adam. And now Israel is being called the son of God. Now you'll recall that we are longing for a son, a male royal offspring that's embodied in Abraham. Through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. But not only that promise. So, so let me go back, Genesis 3.15. I've got it up on the screen. The offspring of a woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The same serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And the serpent will bruise the offspring of the woman's heel. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. And I argued that it's not just general Israel. In that text, it's talking about one male descendant that all of the world's hope is built upon. The serpent, Satan himself, brought curse into the world. And he's going to have a line of offspring that are going to be curse-like, hostile to God. But then there's another line, another family tree of offspring that are hoping in the ultimate offspring. And now this entire group over here is called the Son of God. And they are contrasted with another son. Exodus 4, 23. Let my son go, Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse, behold, I will kill your son. So we have a, a, a statement that there's a friction. There's a friction between Pharaoh and God's son. It's the same type of friction that we've seen all through Genesis between these two family trees at odds with one another. And the reason that we have this line of descent that is pro-God is in order to be imagers of God, to display His greatness, to live dependently for the sake of God's mission in the world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my image so that I am made much of to the ends of the earth. And they're living, and then they're in a context. That context is their mission field. And it's the offspring of the serpent who is hostile to God. And all of a sudden, we have the Son of God being put up at odds with in confrontation with the son of Pharaoh. As if he's part of the offspring of the serpent in contrast to the offspring of the woman. So I think this is, what this is doing is it's setting a context for me for Exodus that says this is still about God's kingdom building purpose. This is still about the mission and the Messiah. And Israel, as being tagged the son of God, is in some way a picture, the entire nation, a picture of the ultimate hope of the world. When the ultimate son of God would rise again, Israel is like a second Adam. He was the son of God. Now Israel is like a second Adam, and we're anticipating the last Adam. Are you tracking with me? 
Jesus is called the last Adam, not the second. I think the Old Testament is filled with second and third and fourth and fifth Adams, meaning a whole bunch of pictures of what Adam was supposed to be. They bear the same mission of being imagers of God, magnifiers of his greatness. That's going to be Israel's mission. And they're but a picture. Their calling is but a picture of what the ultimate curse-overcoming deliverer, offspring of the woman, would do in this world. Overcoming all that is hostile to God. So the story of the Exodus with Israel being um, exalted and Egypt being put down, it's a mere picture of God's ultimate promise to reverse the curse and establish blessing, to exalt the dependent and to crush the self-exalting. Okay? And then through the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, God is simply reaffirming a commitment that he had made to Abraham. Here's, was, here was his promises to Abraham. I will establish my covenant, Abraham. I'm going to establish my covenant between me and between you and between your offspring after you. God's making a covenant with Abraham that wasn't just for Abraham but for his offspring. And that's the Israel we read about in Exodus. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. What the Mosaic Covenant is about is about God as the great king who has a people and who are going to live in the midst of a property. There is a people and a realm for the kingdom. And God is at the top. And what God promised to Abraham is what we see being played out then in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. Two questions that dominate this book. One is asked by Israel, and one is asked by Pharaoh. And I think the entire book is designed to answer these two theological questions. You'll remember when God sets Moses aside and says, I'm going to send you to be my messenger, and Moses freaks out. He shouldn't have freaked out. God had equipped him, but he still felt very inadequate. How had God equipped him? He'd given him 40 years at MIT, Egypt. He's, you remember he was born as a slave boy, and then his mom put him in a basket. The Egyptian princess picked her up, and Fer Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt. Oh yeah, we saw the movie. And he was raised as a prince of Egypt, and in that time he's getting educated in the highest level school of the nation, learning government and history and language and politics and science. The kinds of things that you hope a leader of a massive people would be well equipped in. International diplomacy. And then, that's not enough. He murders that guy in Egypt and he flees and he heads off to Midian 
he meets a really cute girl, and he begins to shepherd the flocks of his new father-in-law. And what it says in chapter 3 of of Exodus is that he was shepherding the flocks at the west side of the wilderness when he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We have to see a connection here at the beginning of Exodus to the middle of Exodus. The beginning of Exodus starts at Mount Sinai. That's the name for Horeb, the mountain of God, where Moses meets God with the burning bush. The bush is not consumed. The wood of the bush is not providing fuel for the fire. The fire is burning on its own. It's its own energy source. It's God. Moses is at Mount Sinai right then. He's a shepherd. He gets 40 more years. After 40 years at MIT, he goes out into this backwoods Boundary Waters experience for training, shepherding experience, as if he's going to need more... uh, tenting, eating outside kind of experiences. Like 40 years of them. He's going to be a leader of the people and he's going to be an outdoorsman and God gives him 80 years of equipment before he ever brings him back to Egypt. But notice 3.12. Chapter 3, verse 12. God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is indeed me, I, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This will be the sign that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So all the while... Let's, let's put this into the framework. Way back here, God promises to Abraham 400 years of slavery, and then I'll bring the people out and take them to the land. So this entire book is going to be framed by a promise that land is on the other side. The promised land is where we're headed. But the promised land is not even the end. Because before the promised land promise, God had said, I'm going to raise up a royal deliverer through whom all the world will be blessed. So all the while we're reading the Old Testament, we're still putting our hope in that Genesis 3.15 first gospel promise. Then God says, I'm going to give you the land, and now you come into the book of Exodus, and God says, you're at Mount Sinai, this is going to be the sign that it's indeed me. After all the plagues, you're coming back to this mountain. But in light of the earlier promise, we know that they're going to come back to the mountain only for a temporary amount of time because their goal is to get back in the land. And then all the time they're going to be in the land, which is the rest of the Old Testament, until the end when they're kicked out. All the time they're in the land, they're supposed to be longing for the promise that started things out. 
When they realize we're not here just for ourselves, God didn't raise up Israel for Israel, he raised up Israel for the sake of the world. So that's the big story. So here's Moses, and he asks a question. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Here's the question, Israel's question, that needs to be answered in this book. Moses says to God, you know, he's got all these, he's very bold. God says something and Moses, but God, and then he comes back and it's, you've got a whole series of rounds, like a boxing match, back and forth. Moses says, God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, I'm in chapter 3, verse 13, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What do you want me to tell them? And God's response is, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. Not just I am has sent me to you, but Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. Israel wants to know God's name, and I think they're asking more than just what are the first letters of his identification. They want to know his character. They want, to, they want justification for his ability to lead them out of the strongest nation in the world. We're in slavery here, and you just show up thinking you can take us out? How big is this God you're proclaiming? Prove it. What is his name? And so the rest of the book is going to be designed to answer that question for Israel. And in doing so, it's going to unpack the character of God. It's directly in line with where we were. I just realized I skipped one thing. Before I finish this thought, let me go back and make sure I... Ah, one important element just to finish our story. It's the second point that's up on the screen. God promised to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. Not only had God promised Moses 400 years, sorry, Abraham 400 years, and then I'll bring you in. The rest of Genesis is designed to instill hope for the Exodus. And I just want to, before we move on, look at the very last verses of Genesis. Because this plays into the plot and the hope for God's faithfulness to his promises. There's the whole saga. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob has 12 boys. And then there's the whole Joseph saga. The famine rises in Egypt. Joseph gets hiked off to Egypt. He becomes a prince in the land. And through him, God delivers the people. Joseph and his brothers have now been reconciled. He said, 
what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's all part of his glorious plan. And then Joseph ends the book this way, and we should hear the promise, God-glorifying context. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm in chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Here is a man absolutely confident in the promise of God. And he can't hold it in. But his love for his brothers compels him to spread a passion for the supremacy of God to his brothers. When we rely on the promises of God we are making much of the supremacy of God. We're trusting His bigness. And then notice what he says, verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here to the land. That helps shape the introduction to Exodus. Because as much time as Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers are going to spend unpacking a great vision of God, the vision is always future because we're waiting for the fulfillment of this. The bones of Joseph being carried up. And it's going to happen in in Joshua. In fact, the very last two verses of Joshua say, this is fulfilled and the glory of God is magnified as the great promise completer. So Exodus is, I I, I say this to say all that we're saying is in a future-oriented context, a context that is confident in a big God and yet a people who are wrestling in a very hard world. Two sides of it, the original audience that had been in slavery 400 years and the present audience who gets the book written for them, who are in the wilderness under the weight of their sin. And yet God gives them this book to remind them, I'm a God who fulfills promises. Look to me, don't run from me. Pharaoh's question. Israel asks, what is his name? Here's Pharaoh's question. Moses shows up in Pharaoh's presence, chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to and said to Pharaoh, this is the first time they get to have a meeting with him. They say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh says, just hear this, this is amazing. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh? God created mankind in order to make much of himself. I want you to image me. This is a God who is passionate to preserve and display his glory. And now the supreme highest king of the world, the top dog of all the ancient Near East, Egypt is the superpower. He says, who's Yahweh? So we have a people desperate to know their God. Is he big enough? Is he faithful enough? And you have a king so proud and so clueless 
that his very life, moment by moment, is upheld by the word of Yahweh's power. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I will not let Israel go. A God who is passionate to preserve and display his glory will act when somebody says, What is his name? He will act when those who are haughty say, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Next week, I'm going to unpack for us, by God's grace, this amazing portrait of God in this book, the first half of this book. He wants to be known. He wants to be feared. And these 15 chapters are scary to me in a good way. But I I ask the question to you, Do you believe in the God of Exodus? Next week we're going to unpack that question more. Do you know his name? Do you know who Yahweh is? This book is designed to answer those questions and the portrait of God may may cause you to fear in a way that you haven't before. May cause you to feel small in a way that you haven't before. And in that context may cause you to feel hope and an opportunity for help in a way that you've never felt it before. Let me pray. Lord, timing is in your hands. I ask that you would work in the hearts of those in this room, nurturing in them a sweet, restful confidence in a God who promises to show up, a God who does remember, a God who knows. Thank you that you are faithful. We rest in you today. Thank you that you are for us in Christ and that in him, even for a bunch of sinners, saved by grace, every promise is yes. Help us, God. We are needy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.